Welcome to the Runner's World Show. This week we have three segments that are loosely connected by the Olympic track and field trials, both past and present. This year's trials began at Hayward Field in Eugene, Oregon on Friday, and they conclude this weekend. The men will run the 5,000-meter final on Saturday, and the women will run their final on Sunday. And just in time for that race, we have a conversation with Julia Lucas, who missed making the 2012 Olympic team in the 5,000 meters by the narrowest of margins. She talks openly about what she calls her spectacular failure and how it changed her and her perspective on running. And in the kick, we'll bring you an update on the current trials and a roundup of the week's other running news. But first, we're taking a two-part look back at the legacy of Steve Prefontaine, the track star who captivated the sport and even the country in the 1970s before his death at age 24 in a car crash. Thanks for joining us. Steve Prefontaine, or... Pre, as he's universally known, is without a doubt one of the enduring legends of our sport. At one time, he held the American record in seven different distances on the track, from 2,000 meters to 10,000 meters. He was a phenom from the small blue-collar town of Coos Bay, Oregon, and he was known as much for his iconic mustache and long hair as he was for his never-say-die front-running style. His all-out performances riveted fans fellow athletes, and industry leaders alike. He died in 1975, but his legacy continues, and he's arguably as famous today as he was back then. We've got a special two-part segment on Pre in this show. First, an excerpt from Shoe Dog, the recently published memoir from the co-creator of Nike, Phil Knight. Both Pre and Knight ran at the University of Oregon for legendary coach Bill Bowerman. And later, Knight hired Pre to be Nike's first-ever paid endorsed athlete. And then, to get another perspective on Pre's dynamic life on and off the track, I have a conversation with marathoner and Olympic gold medalist Frank Shorter, Pre's friend, training partner, and occasional rival. We'll begin with the excerpt, which opens at the 1972 track and field trials in Eugene. Here... We hear how Phil Knight saw parallels in how to successfully run his fledgling company, then called Blue Ribbon Sports, in the grit and tenacity displayed by Pre on the track. We turned our attention to the Olympic track and field trials, which in 1972 were being held for the first time ever in our backyard, Eugene. We needed to own those trials, so we sent an advanced team down to give shoes to any competitor willing to take them. And we set up a staging area in our store, which was now being ably run by Hollister. As the trials opened, we set up a silkscreen machine in the back of the store and cranked out scores of Nike t-shirts, which Penny handed out like Halloween candy. With all that work, how could we not break through? And indeed, Dave Davis, a shot putter from USC dropped by the store the first day to complain that he wasn't getting free stuff from either Adidas or Puma, so he'd gladly take our shoes and wear them. And then he finished fourth. Hooray! Better yet, he didn't just wear our shoes, he waltzed around in one of Penny's t-shirts, his name stenciled on the back. The trouble was, Dave wasn't the ideal model. He had a bit of a gut. And our t-shirts weren't big enough, which accentuated his gut. We made a note, buy smaller athletes or make bigger shirts. 
We also had a couple of semifinalists wear our spikes, including an employee, Jim Gorman, who competed in the 1500. I told Gorman he was taking corporate loyalty too far. Our spikes weren't that great. But he insisted that he was in all the way. And then in the marathon, we had Nike shot runners finish 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th. None made the team, but still, not too shabby. The main event of the trials, of course, would come on the final day. A duel between Prefontaine and the great Olympian George Young. By then, Prefontaine was universally known as Pre, and he was far more than a phenom. He was an outright superstar. He was the biggest thing to hit the world of American track and field since Jesse Owens. Sports writers frequently compared him to James Dean and Mick Jagger, and Runner's World said the most apt comparison might be Muhammad Ali. He was that kind of swaggery, transformative figure. To my thinking, however, these and all other comparisons fell short. Pre was unlike any athlete this country had ever seen, though it was hard to say exactly why. I'd spent a lot of time studying him, admiring him, puzzling about his appeal. I'd ask myself time and again what it was about Pre that triggered such visceral responses from so many people, including myself. I never did come up with a totally satisfactory answer. It was more than his talent. There were other talented runners, and it was more than his swagger. There were plenty of swaggering runners. Some said it was his look. Pre was so fluid, so poetic, with that flowing mop of hair, and he had the broadest, deepest chest imaginable, set on slender legs that were all muscle and never stopped churning. Also, most runners are introverts, but Pre was an obvious, joyous extrovert. It was never simply running for him. He was always putting on a show, always conscious of the spotlight. Sometimes I thought the secret to Pree's appeal was his passion, his fire. He didn't care if he died crossing the finish line, so long as he crossed first. No matter what Bowerman told him, no matter what his body told him, Pree refused to slow down, ease off. He pushed himself to the brink and beyond. This was often a counterproductive strategy, and sometimes it was plainly stupid, and occasionally it was suicidal but it was always uplifting for the crowd. No matter the sport, no matter the human endeavor, really, total effort will win people's hearts. Of course, all Oregonians loved Pre because he was ours. He was born in our midst, raised in our rainy forests, and we'd cheered him since he was a pup. We'd watched him break the national two-mile record as an 18-year-old, and we were with him step-by-step through each glorious NCAA championship. Every Oregonian felt emotionally invested in his career. And at Blue Ribbon, of course, we were preparing to invest our cash, to put our money where our emotions were. We understood that Pre couldn't switch shoes right before the trials. He was used to his Adidas. But in time, we were certain he'd be a Nike athlete and perhaps the paradigmatic Nike athlete. With these thoughts in mind, walking down Agate Street toward Hayward Field, 
I wasn't surprised to find the place shaking, rocking, trembling with cheers. The Colosseum in Rome could not have been louder when the gladiators and lions were turned loose. We found our seats just in time to see Pre doing his warm-ups. Every move he made caused a new ripple of excitement. Every time he jogged down one side of the oval or up the other, the fans along his route stood and went wild. Half of them were wearing T-shirts that read, Legend. All of a sudden, we heard a chorus of deep, guttural boos. Gary Lindgren, arguably the world's best distance runner at the time, appeared on the track, wearing a T-shirt that read, Stop Pre. It made our hearts pound. Lindgren had beaten Pre when he was a senior and Pre a freshman, and he wanted everyone, especially Pre, to remember. But when Pre saw Lindgren and saw the shirt, he just shook his head and smiled. No pressure, only a bit more incentive. The runners took their marks. An unearthly silence fell. Then, bang, the starting gun sounded like a Napoleon cannon. Pre took the lead right away, Young tucked in right behind him. In no time, they pulled well ahead of the field, and it became a two-man affair. Lindgren was far behind, a non-factor. Each man's strategy was clear. Young meant to stay with Pre until the final lap, then use his superior sprint to go by and win. Pre, meanwhile, intended to set such a fast pace at the outset that by the time they got to that final lap, Young's legs would be gone. For 11 laps, they ran a half-stride apart. With the crowd now roaring, frothing, shrieking, the two men entered the final lap. It felt like a boxing match. It felt like a joust. It felt like a bullfight, and we were down to that moment of truth. Death hanging in the air. Pre reached down, found another level. We saw him do it. He opened up a yard lead, then two, then five. We saw Young grimacing, and we knew that he could not, would not catch Pre. I told myself, don't forget this. Do not forget. I told myself there was much to be learned from such a display of passion, whether you were running a mile or a company. As they crossed the tape... We all looked up at the clock and saw that both men had broken the American record. Pre had broken it by a shade more, but he wasn't done. He spotted someone waving a Stop Pre t-shirt. He went over and snatched it and whipped it in circles above his head like a scalp. What followed was one of the greatest ovations I've ever heard, and I've spent my life in stadiums. I'd never witnessed anything quite like that race. And yet I didn't just witness it, I took part in it. Days later, I felt sore in my hams and quads. This, I decided, this is what sports are, what they can do. Like books, sports give people a sense of having lived other lives, of taking part in other people's victories and defeats. When sports are at their best... The spirit of the fan merges with the spirit of the athlete. And in that convergence, in that transference, is the oneness that the mystics talk about. Walking back down Agate Street, I knew that race was part of me, would forever be part of me. 
and I vowed it would also be part of Blue Ribbon. In our coming battles with Onitsuka, with whomever, we'd be like Pri. We'd compete as if our lives depended on it. Because they did. That was an excerpt from Shoe Dog by Nike co-founder Phil Knight, read by Norbert Leo Butts. There's no doubt that Steve Prefontaine was a running legend. He was a brash and magnetic athlete who inspired spectators, his fellow competitors, and industry movers and shakers like Nike co-founder Phil Knight. That image of him waving a Stop Pre t-shirt above his head, firing up the crowd, that was quintessential Pre. But who was Pre really? What did his rivals think of him? And what happened the night Pre died at age 24 at the height of his career? To get a better sense of who Pre was and why we're just as captivated by him today as we were then, I spoke with Frank Shorter. Frank is a bit of a legend himself, having won gold in the marathon at the 1972 Munich Olympics. He was Pre's occasional training partner and competitor on the track, and Frank was Pre's friend. In fact, he was one of the last people to see him alive. Frank recently published his own memoir, My Marathon, Reflections on a Gold Medal Life, which was just published this week, and his relationship with Pre figures prominently in the book. I started our conversation by asking Frank to share the story of what it was like to run in what turned out to be Pre's final race. It was 1975 at Hayward Field in Eugene, Oregon. The pair were racing together in the 5,000 meters. Frank, however, said that to understand the atmosphere and the excitement around that race, you had to go back to 1974. Same city, Eugene, Oregon, and same track, Hayward Field. Frank says that in that 1974 race, he and Pre had made a deal with each other. We had a plan in, in that race, and it was we were going to alternate half miles in the lead, and with um, a half mile to go, it would be every man for himself. We were going to run at a pace that we wanted to uh, you know, maintain to break the American record for three miles. And we did this all the way through, and then with two laps to go, Steve was leading, and our deal was, okay, with two laps to go, that's it. And I waited and waited and waited, and then coming off the final turn with a little more than a lap to go, um, I took off, and with one lap to go, I had a five-meter lead on Pre, who had never been beaten at five in, on Hayward Field wow. in 5,000 meters. And we went down the back stretch, and it was almost as if you, you could feel the roar of the crowd just lifting you. It's one of the few times I've ever really heard the crowd d- during a race. Huh. And I got a lead on him down the back stretch because the wind was with me. And in that race, there was so much wind that we were running about two to three seconds slower into the wind than we were with the wind. So I went down the back stretch, and I'm, I'm lighter, I'm smaller, and he's stronger. And then with a half lap to go, um, I said, well, he's going to come. He's coming. <laughs> I know he's coming. And, and I came off the last turn, and I started to run into the wind. And with about 10 meters to go, he went by me. And we crossed the finish line within a tenth of a second of each other. And I threw up my hands 
when he crossed the finish line, he immediately turned around. He didn't keep running and, and throw up his hands. He turned around, and we hugged each other on the finish line. And that was one of the best races I've ever run, and I lost. <laughs> yeah. So a, a year later, when we went back, I think there was that expectation in that meet that maybe they were going to see the same kind of thing. He and I had a history on Hayward Field, and I'm telling you, Probably 90% of those fans had been there the year before. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and, and so Pre called me up on the Tuesday before the Friday and said, can you come on out and run against me? And my words, right out of my mouth, I said, oh, you need somebody to beat, huh? <laughs> he said, yeah. <laughs> he said, yeah. And, and, and be, because he did. You know, they needed, they needed a show. And and so that really was the atmosphere that, that last night. And so the race truly did start out that way. But with about a half mile to go, um, I, I, was, I was not as fit and as ready um, as I'd been the year before. So he, he pulled away from me. And I was, I think I was six, seven, eight seconds behind. So, you know, that race we ran that last night um, of his life, I knew that I was going to find out just how much I had in me, and and he and, and that's was his quality. He could make you make you bring out the best in yourself. Because if 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 that if that weren't going to happen, you weren't going to even come close to him. Can you can you just show us that that drama from the nineteen seventy five race again, if if you will? You made it sound like it really wasn't that dramatic a race, and, and maybe it wasn't. But my impression, just from reading about it, uh, was that. He outkicked you on the last lap of this of this five thousand meters. Again, from you have to understand my perspective. I mean, I got I got beaten. <laughs> right. And, you know, un, unlike the year before, you know, I was getting dropped, and and so uh, I was more focused on on just trying to get to the finish line. But I th- I think you're right in terms of the drama and in terms of the roar. Um, <laughs> it it's almost as if. I were a spectator, but I was on the track running, right. and I, I think that's a better way to way right. to look at it. And right. so, as as I think about it, yeah, I I got to participate in the frenzy, but I was you know sort of an active participant. But the other thing, I, I think, what also went through my mind uh, at the time, I really um, realized how good he was getting, and and that he was much better than he'd been the year before. And in, in, in the way he finished that, that day, I watched him go across the finish line. He would generally, when he crossed the finish line, immediately start to fall apart. <laughs> he, would, he would hold together right until he crossed the line, and, and then it was almost like someone pulled out a plug and all the air started to go out of him. Yeah. And, and it, he, he had that ability to do that and, and absolutely get everything out of himself. And, uh, you know, I got to be right on the track to see that. Um, and, and so I guess, I, I, again, I was, what was going through my mind was, well, I was sort of close to his league last year, but I think I'm out of his league now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was, the, so what, I have to ask you, what, what was that like? I mean, you, you are, you it was are, fun. you are Frank freaking shorter. You were absolutely in your running prime. What was it like to recognize that? Uh, I think part of recognizing your talent and the way i can answer that is steve was not a miler 15 uh pre was not a miler 1500 meter guy mm-hmm. 
But 5,000 meters was his distance. And my distance was the marathon. I believe what made me the marathon runner I was was that I focused more than others, probably anybody else, on running the 5,000-meter distance well. Um, and so, but I knew I wasn't the best. I knew where my, my best chances were. And, but it also means you, you just want to see how well you can do. Every time you step on the track, and I think that's where Pri and I were for similar, you just want to find out what's there. And, you know, on that last night when he ran, I, I found out that he, he was now uh, a much better 5,000-meter runner uh, than I was. And so I could, I could appreciate that. It's also curious to me, and maybe it's related to the fact that you recognize that Pre's distance was the 5,000 and your distance ideally was longer. But Pre was a famous front runner. And it's interesting that you were leading this race in 1975 until the last lap. And you were leading the race the prior year until the last half lap until Pre caught you. How unusual was it for Pre to not be leading a race? And was that an intentional strategy that you had from the beginning? No, it was we were both trying hard. And I was trying to take away his, his I had to be leading. Because in any race like that, all, all runners will tell you, when you're in a race and you know who all the opposition is, you, there's a continuum of speed. Everybody knows how fast they are in the last 165, 160 meters compared to everybody else. And I knew Steve was faster than I was. So I had to have a lead. I had to have a lead coming off the last turn. And he knew that I knew. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, and the other thing was, I don't think he really knew that I wasn't in quite as good a shape. So, you know, he was basing his strategy on the, the race the year before. And, you know, so when I say he was a better 5,000-meter runner, he was. But in a sense, you can think of it only over the last 160 yards. 165 yards. So it was strategy on his part, knowing he was the faster finisher that in a way even allowed me to be in front. Right. So you were you were a few years older than Pri, and you first met at a race in Europe, and, and you write about this killer workout that you did with Pri. I believe it was 1,600, followed by 1,200, followed by 800, followed by 800, followed by two 400s, and running each interval successively faster. What was it like to do that workout with Pre? Was it, were there any qualities that you recognized in him that day that, that stood out to you as being uniquely Pre? Yeah, it, it was. He was willing to do the work, and he was willing to share the load, and he wasn't, um, he wasn't in training about to take advantage of anyone else so that he could achieve his training goals at someone else's expense. So when There's we ran that first— There was a code of honor then. Yes, there was a code of honor. And, and I think we both immediately picked up on that because in that workout when we did it, there was nothing verbal. It was only, um, um, it was only looks, uh, you know, eye contact, where decisions were made about, okay, I'm taking the lead on this one. And then at whatever point during that repetition, the person pulls out, the other one goes through and takes the lead and does it. There was nothing planned. It, it, it's, it's an instinctive thing because you're trying to keep up the effort and the pace and momentum. It, it's that kind of communication. And I recognize that the first day. And, and the other thing, that first workout we did, this was 1969. And 
and he just graduated from high school, and I just graduated from college, and yet, in a way, he was as developed in his in his running and career uh, as I was. It makes me wonder, what was it that that attracted you to Pre? Do you think it was the same things that other people sort of projected onto him? His passion, his his extroverted nature, his fire, or was there something else? Did you feel like you got to know Pre in a way that the public didn't get to? When when you're in that situation, you create a kind of trust, and I think you know he trusted me because right before he died, he had he had come to Boulder and we'd spent a couple weeks training together, and I'd even taken him down to New Mexico to ski and run. We ran 15 miles a day at 9,000 to 10,000 feet, and then skied all day. And um, he was pre a good skier. No, he's terrible. (laughs) <laughs> what what made him what made him such a terrible skier? Uh, he'd never skied before, so yeah. I took him over the beginner's hill, and we went to the top. And I said, "You want any lessons?" He said, "No." So I showed him how to snowplow, and he snowplowed straight to the bottom of the hill and ran into a hay bale. <laughs> wow! And, All right, I'm then, sorry. I just so got to pause the, here. By the end this of the is first... pre- this is Steve Prefontaine on the bunny hill, snowplowing, yeah. and running into, into a hay, a hay bale. Wow. Oh, That's yeah. not oh, yeah. an image oh, yeah. I ever thought I would hold in my head. <laughs> and so by the end by the end of the trip he was he was up on the mountain and um he was almost stem turning, but he was still mostly snow plowing. But again it was that same defiance. But you see, I think the other thing, and this is what, what just comes to mind to me, to me what that brings out too is that, you know, there was always this passion and emotion, but there was never anger and frustration. And I think that, ironically, it wasn't in running, but it was on the bunny hill at Towski Valley in New Mexico where that became very apparent to me, huh. you see, is yeah. that here was, here was a goal, here was something he had to learn to do, this is how his mind works, uh, this is how he's going to deal with this problem. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, everyone says passion, but sometimes people um, mistake passion for aggression, Right, right, and right. and so it's hard to maybe think of of Steve uh, Pre as um, not aggressive, but in a sense, I didn't view him as an aggressive person, and so I I, I think that's um, and that that came out on that bunny hill, <laughs> wow. and that was three weeks before the meet at Hayward Field. Okay, so after the meet in 1975, what what did you do? Did did, did the two of you end up at Jeff Hollister's? place where the the party was or yeah i there... i ended up i went over i went to the party with uh sorry to interrupt you i'm but i'm no no this please is sort of emotional for me we actually left fairly early because we were going to get up and have a training run the next day steve pre was going to give me a ride back to kenny's house and so he did and we we got in his car and drove back there and and um kenny lived uh uh in a place called Hendricks Park, which is up on a butte. Um, Eugene has several buttes in the, in the city. And so you drive up, a, you know, roads to get up there. One road was very gentle and easy, and that's the one we took up and on the backside. And we got to Kenny's house and stopped and turned off the motor, and, and we sort of just kind of, you know, uh, talked about what had gone on and what we were going to, go from there a little bit about, okay, what's the next step now, you know, now that we've done this. And we talked for a while and then talked about getting up the next morning and um, 
he started up the car and drove down the hill, and I noticed that he took a right-hand turn, which was another way off um, the butte. And that was a very, very windy road with um, blind corners. And we never ran that road. It was too dangerous. Mm. Cars coming around the corners, uphill especially, if you're coming downhill. And so I went to sleep, and Kenny came in and about woke me up I w- and said, well, Pree's dead. And we walked down the hill and saw where, uh, at least in my estimation, you could see the skid marks and everything, and there was still some debris, that he had been on the correct side of the road, on the right side of the road coming up, and had been approaching what was from the bottom coming up the hill, a blind right-hand turn around a big boulder. And I believe that what happened is someone came up the hill too fast, went out into um, Pre's lane, came around the corner. Pre couldn't go right because there was stone wall, and in the left was a retaining wall. So he instinctively veered left, hit the wall, and his car rolled over on him. Right. So everyone is trying, always tried to figure out what, what had happened, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's, that's what happened. Someone drove him off the road. So obviously and it you, also means, yeah, it also means whoever drove him off the road didn't stop. Right. Yeah, there are t- there, I've, I've heard different theories on exactly what happened, and obviously uh, if anyone knows exactly what happened, uh, they, they've remained quiet about that. That's right. I'm curious, though, when, when Kenny came and gave you that news, he, you said he woke you up and gave you that news? You, you were right. sleeping? Right, he woke me up and gave me the news. Yeah, what, was, what went through my head. What was, yeah, what was your I first thought, thought? My, my thought was, oh, my God. And, and I, it was, and, and you're in shock. And so you're not really processing it at that point. And what you do if you're an athlete, you start moving. So Kenny and I immediately walked down the hill. We moved. (laughs) And and then once I got down there, I think at some point, I I really did start to to think, oh, my God, you know, what if we'd talked for five seconds more, five seconds less? And he'd started the car, you know, sooner or later. And it made that right hand turn down the hill 15 seconds later than he did. Mm-hmm. And that that stayed with me a long time. I could I could blot it out cuz you know, you you can be good at it sort of um compartmentalizing things. But I I thought about that for a long time. And and I think I finally got over it and then I'll I'll get off the subject. I th- I think then at a certain point I realized Steve is up there looking down on me going, "Frank, get over it." <laughs> get, get on with your life. I think that would be his response. <laughs> How often do you find yourself thinking about him? Um, well, it's a constant reminder because every time I go somewhere, it's wonderful yeah. because of the movie Without Limits. Uh-huh. He, he's become an icon amongst uh, young runners, high school runners. And what the beauty of it is, it's not, it's gender neutral. Uh, both the boys and the girls, view, and it, they view in the same way. And that's what's so great about it. <laughs> why do, why uh, do you think we still talk about him today? I, I, I wonder if it has something to do, perhaps, with the fact that he was so young when he died. He was 24, 
you know, his story was not yet complete. He hadn't gone on to run in another Olympics. He hadn't experienced the inevitable ups and downs of of an athletic career. Do you think that has something to do with his yeah, continued yeah, popularity? Yes, I do, along with the fact that I, I, I don't know. I, I think another, no, I do know. See, the other part of it was that he was doing things like, you know, fighting for the athletes' rights at the same time in a public way and uh, getting involved with Nike and the marketing side of, of the running boom. And and so I think when you talk about sort of a life unfulfilled, it was not only from the sports side, it was from, you know, the, the other side as well. Yeah. Anybody today remind you of Pre by any chance, either as a runner no, or no. as a personality? Hmm. No, 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 he, he, he was unique. Yeah. That's an easy answer. <laughs> My conversation with Frank Shorter didn't end with Pre. Frank has his own remarkable and heart-wrenching story. We'll share it with you in a later episode. In case you're not up to date with the Olympic track and field trial schedule, the final for the women's 5,000 meters is this Sunday. I spent a few days at the trials this past weekend, and one of the highlights of this every four years event is definitely the winners and the glory that goes with making an Olympic team. The top three finishers in every event punch their ticket to go to the Olympics. But not far behind, there are the near misses and the so-called losers, the athletes who finish fourth and fifth, sometimes just fractions of a second off of their dream. So it's a good time for a conversation with Julia Lucas. Four years ago, Julia ran the 5,000-meter final at the trials. Like they are this year, the trials were held at Hayward Field in Eugene, Oregon. Julia was a member of the Oregon Track Club, so she was a hometown favorite. She was healthy and fit, and she and her coach, Mark Rowland, had a plan. A plan that fell apart at the worst possible time. After leading for a couple laps toward the end of the race... Julia missed making the team by the narrowest of margins, by about the length of a pencil point, in fact. We believe it is the closest near miss of any American distance runner in history. I caught up with Julia at Hayward Field when I was there over the weekend. We were sitting up in the stands at Hayward watching the decathlon competition, less than 10 meters away from the finish line where all of her Olympic dreams had been shattered. I wanted to know how an athlete moves forward after a race like that. To begin, however, I asked her to take us back to the starting line four years ago. Coach said to stick in the middle and uh, maintain contact with the leaders until three laps to go. He knew from the people in the race that it would be a dynamic race with moves made and things happening, um, that it would be exciting that things would happen without me taking control. And just to weather those storms and hold on, hold on till three laps to go. And then um, either with three to go or with 600 meters to go, a lap and a half, to make a move and make an assertive move. Um, and with three laps to go, I went and I went hard. I felt good. The crowd knew me. They knew my green uniform as the Oregon Track Club uniform. 
they were just so loud and giving me so much energy and it felt like magic and it felt like flight and that magic and flight only lasted it lasted two and a half laps and then gravity descended with 200 meters to go and the last 100 meters just took a really long time I had my eyes fixed fixed on that finish line for a hundred years um just staring at it, trying to make it come to me, wouldn't come, body rebelling. And uh, in the last step of the race, uh, Kim Connolly caught me. I didn't know she was coming. The crowd was so loud. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't have hear, heard myself scream. Um, my foot crossed the finish line first, but she did a very smart uh, chest lean at the line. And the chest is what counts uh, in track and field, the photo finish shows her chest across the line first, my foot across the line first, and she went to the Olympics, and I stayed home. And there was a photo finish, right? People who were right at the line uh, said that they could see it, that it was clear. I didn't know. And people who were at odd angles, so technically it was a, it was a photo finish. Um, 0.04 seconds. We all crossed the finish line. Everyone's tired. The first thing you do is look up at the board, at the scoreboard, the jumbotron above you, um, just hands on your hips, heads craning up, waiting. And when that list came came up, um, it was Julie Cully, Molly Huddle, Kim Connolly with the Olympic rings next to their name and me in fourth, 0.04 seconds behind. Um, it was probably a 10-second lag. Um, I was just waiting, and when that happened, I sat down, and the three uh, Olympians got flags and did a victory lap. And then I went and did interviews. Yeah. <laughs> The questions were like, will she recover? And um, and my response was immediately like, I'm going to come back fighting and I'll show them all. And and I, I did that. I got I took a break and then got back in shape. And the next year was in the shape of my life. And I ran a PR in the 1500. I ran 405. Um, I didn't PR in the 5K, but I think it was in that kind of shape. The race just didn't come together. But the, the season felt really different. Like the year before, I just felt on fire every step and that year I, I felt like I was going through the motions kind of faking it I was still going through all the motions I was doing everything I was supposed to do practice every day all the miles just things felt a little a little dead a little dead behind the eyes yeah. um, and I, I thought and I, I I've been doing this for 18 years and so I thought weather the storm and just go through the motions and it'll come back and two years after it just hadn't and I, I thought Spent a lot of time thinking about that, obviously, and um, engaging in various coping mechanisms, <laughs> um, and just and just trying to think about it, not think too much about it, get over it, light the fire back up, do anything I could, and it just wouldn't wouldn't come back. Um, and I think running for me, a lot of runners say that it's about. It's about them. It comes from within. It's reach, reaching their own goals. It's an internal thing. And it's not like that for me. Like, I want the connection with people. I want... I am inspired by thinking of myself as a possible inspiration to people, um, as connecting to other competitors and and feeling feeling us, us locked in this sort of brotherhood, sisterhood yeah. <laughs> competition. Um, and I think that the trials in 2012... And that spectacular failure was as big an impact as I was going to have. Um, it was uh, 
like dramatic in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of storylines that ended with this crescendo that had Hayward Field on its feet and roaring, which is a goal for every athlete um, in the sport. Hayward Field, bringing Hayward Field to its feet is like a magical thing. And I did that, and then Hayward Field was totally silent watching the the scoreboard waiting for my result. Um, And that is also something that doesn't really happen <laughs> in an exciting race, the silence. Um, and any victory that I could have, any like traditional victory I could have, I don't think that would would have that sort of um, like deep, meaningful impact. Like what is what is sport if not for for meaning and impact? And it wasn't a Disney storybook like perfect fairy tale ending. Um, but I don't. I don't think that that it's the goodness of my career. I think there's value in that in that spectacular failure as great as a victory could be. That is not to say I do not wish I were Olympian. I wish I were an Olympian. I wish I won that race. Um, I wish I'd gone on and got a world record and a world medal, championship medal and an Olympic medal. I want. I'm not minimizing that pursuit because that's all I wanted for my whole life. But I'm also like damn proud of my impact on the sport. Julia has retired from competitive running and is now a coach with the Nike Plus Run Club in New York City. And yes, she definitely plans on watching the race this Sunday. And just in case you think these near-miss stories are few and far between, on Monday, just one day after I spoke with Julia... The women's 800-meter final also came down to a dramatic finish. Three runners went on to make the Olympic team headed to Rio, but Molly Ludlow finished fourth. Her margin of defeat? 0.04 seconds. For more on that race and other highlights from the track trials in Eugene, here are RunnersWorld.com site director Chris Kraft and editor Brian Dalek with The Kick. Okay, so for The Kick this week, I brought down my boss Chris Kraft Usually, he only wants to talk about the boss. We had to bribe Chris with the uh, promise of uh, Bruce Springsteen talk at the end. Right, Chris? At the end? I thought uh, there was going to be the whole thing. We, I don't think we should lead off with it. We'll come back. Okay. I, I promise you we'll come back. All right, as long as we get to it. All right. I, I think at first we should talk about the Olympic track trials. They've been going on in Eugene. Right. So we've got a team out there in Eugene, um, several people covering it. Um, we're watching back here. Yeah, so it started on Friday night. Um, the biggest race that night was the men's 10,000. Kind of by the books there, Galen Rupp, um, he's already qualified for the Olympics in the marathon. He did that back in February. And then in the 10,000, he kind of ran his own race and ran away from the field and got another berth in the 10,000. Now, later in the week, He's also qualified for the final in the 5,000. His legs look a little heavy at this point. He ran in the prelims on Monday. So it'll be interesting to see whether he's going to go for all three or if he drops out of the five. It might be a call by him or his coach, Alberto Salazar. Right. He looked really, really strong in that 10,000 on Friday. It was was impressive to watch him. He was just kind of toying with the rest of the field, I felt like, Um, just kind of challenging the rest of the field to – to run his his race, basically. So moving on into the women's 10,000, Molly Huddle also 
kind of what we expected from her. She has been strong all year, does it again in the 10,000 to lead the team with Emily Infeld and Marielle Hall. And then moving on to Sunday, the other thing that people were expecting, but it was a little closer than maybe people were predicting, Ashton Eaton takes the men's decathlon again. He's the world record holder, coming off of a few injuries, but he's still able to maintain kind of that lead position for the team heading to Rio. And then Monday was the big fireworks day, 4th of July. Yeah, the most interesting race probably was Monday night, the women's 800-meter final. It really kind of broke down with 200 meters to go. Alicia Montano, she was leading the first half, faded a little bit, wanted to make a final kind of kick in the final 150. But somewhere in there, she got tangled up. She stumbles to the track, and in that kind of tangle, she pushes another top competitor, Brenda Martinez, you know, out several lanes. She had stumbled as well. And then that allowed three people kind of out of nowhere. Well, Aji Wilson, she placed second. She was expected to probably make the team, but Kate Grace, she wins the race. And then Krishana Williams, she takes third, kind of seeing out of the corner of her eye that, look, I have a shot at this, so I'm going to go for it. And Kate Grace talked afterward with our videographer, Derek Cole, and you know she kind of talked about what was happening in that moment in the final seconds of the race. I saw Brenda, I think, trip, and then Alicia start to go, um, but then we were past it. And then at that point, like I just saw the finish line and was focusing on finishing hard. Um, but it, yeah, it, I mean, it was a surprise, and I realized it was happening. And it, at that point, though, it was just kind of run, take it, and go. <laughs> So a lot still coming up in Eugene. They'll run from Thursday through Sunday. Yeah, so it'll be a busy four final days of the Olympic track and field trials out in Oregon. But that's not the only thing that was going on in the world of running. Right, right. One of the biggest races in the country happened on Monday on the 4th down in Atlanta. You're pretty familiar with that. You used to live in Atlanta. Yeah, the biggest race in the country, uh, the Peachtree Road Race, uh, with over 55,000 runners and uh, it's just it's it's one great long party down Peachtree mm-hmm. Street. If you ever get a chance to do yeah. it, you you should. And when you have fifty five plus thousand runners, you you're gonna have some stories come out of that. And one of the really fun ones was Betty Lindbergh. She's ninety one, and we've actually written about her before. At the end of May, she set the age group world record for the eight hundred meters. Uh, do you have a guess for what her time was in that, Chris? It was. Um, 657, according to this uh, little sheet that you wrote out for oh, me. Oh, the, the thing before. that you have written in front yeah, of you? Yeah, th- oh. so thanks for that. I'm, I'm, yeah. glad you, I'm glad you studied. Yeah. Good job. Um, it was her 26th time doing the 10K, um, and her finishing time, she won her age group. Not surprisingly, she was the only one in her age group in 151.43. How do you know that time? I have that written in front of me, too. Gotcha. Okay, time to talk about Bruce. Not yet. Oh, oh, one more, one what, more, okay. on, one more what, on the rundown, Chris. What, okay, all right. Uh, Ryan Hall, actually. Yeah, for a guy who's retired from running, we've actually done a lot on Ryan Hall through you know 
many episodes of the Runner's World show. So new family, retired in January. He bulked up to 165 pounds of muscle through weightlifting, and now he announces Sports Illustrated that now that his testosterone levels are kind of back to where they were, that's what kind of sidetracked his professional career. He's going to attempt the World Marathon Challenge next January, and that is seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. So nice, easy way back into the running world. Wow. So this guy has a PR mm-hmm. of uh, like 204, right, right, in the marathon. Mm-hmm. So what is he looking to do here? Well, again, he told SI that he knows he's not going to be doing like a 210. He's, he's going to go out on a nice leisurely run for all of these in about the 6-minute to 6.30 pace. You know, what you and I do, just jumping out the door on the weekends. Right, very my leisurely 6-minute miles, right. Yes, right. yeah. <laughs> so – if he stays in shape next January, World Marathon Challenge, Ryan Hall's, uh, in a way, a little bit of a comeback for him. Wow, yeah. So he retires from running mm-hmm. and then decides to do kind of one of these ultimate running experiences. experiences. Right. You know what that sounds like? What? Wait for it. Oh, boy. Sounds like he was born to run. Ugh. Well, I think that concludes our Bruce Springsteen talk. Uh, what? I know you have, like, piles of CDs up in your office that you want to play, but I think we're going to have to wrap up the kick. Thanks for coming down this week. I say born to run, and that's the extent of our Springsteen talk? I, I oh. no-sell Kit Fox jokes. I will no-sell your jokes, too. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us. And please keep those ratings and reviews coming. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. The show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Mervyn Deganos, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Daly. The Shoe Dog excerpt was read by Norbert Leo Butts, and the audiobook was published by Simon & Schuster Audio this past April. The Runner's World Show is part of the Panoply Podcast Network. Please join us next week when marathoner Dina Castor tells us the story of two very different Olympics. You won't want to miss it.